Welcome to Policing in the Border, a series of interviews comparing the history of policing in the United States and Canada. My name is Max Hammond. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University. This series of podcasts explores the history of policing in Canada and the United States. And with it, I hope to shed some historical perspective on a topic which has much contemporary interest in academic circles and for the broader public. An important part of the history of the Canadian-U.S. border is the history of slavery. Many Canadians believe that antipathy for slavery, following from what we might call the moral capital of abolitionism, put their nation on the right side of history. In fact, frequently refugees were not welcomed, and their migration into Canada was often subjected to legal and social regulation and rejection. Far from seizing the moral high ground, some British North Americans fulminated against the abolition of slavery in 1833. Listen to what one newspaper columnist wrote. This is from the 1842 Morning Post. The abolition of slavery has been a vast injury to British North America, not to speak of the deterioration of property in the islands, which were victims to emancipation, or the demoralized condition of those who, in receiving the boon of liberty, have used it in justification of insolence and inactivity. The free Negro population of this province, pressing for the most part like a dead weight on the community. Furthermore, in the wake of the American Revolution, many Loyalist families brought slaves north to bondage. Indeed, the U.S. and Canadian border has a complicated history with respect to Loyalists, both black and white, slaves, and refugees. New research into the history of black refugees and slaves in the Maritimes provides a startling corrective to the enduring and triumphalist narrative of Canada as a land of freedom. Despite the notion that Canada was a safe haven for black refugees seeking to escape the peculiar institution, early French and British North American colonies have a long history of slavery. Consider this advertisement posted in 1752 by Halifax merchant returning from the West Indies. And I quote, Just imported and to be sold by Joshua Mauger at Major Lockman's store in Halifax, several Negro slaves, end quote. The advertisement provides further details about the sale, including a black woman, two boys of about 12 or 13 years of age, two other slaves of about 18 years of age, and also a man of about 30 years of age. Amani Whitfield's research has produced multiple books and articles that reveal the history of legal and social regulation of blacks crossing the border after the American Revolution. Together, we discussed his books, Blacks on the Border, The Black Refugees in British North America, 1815-1860, and North to Bondage, Loyalist Slavery in the Maritimes. Importantly, Whitfield's research moves beyond the perspective of colonial policymakers and white judges to present the perspectives of black refugees and slaves. Despite their lack of power, Whitfield shows how blacks negotiated their new reality and constructed their own understanding of the border. Dr. Harvey Amani Whitfield, he's a professor of history at the University of Vermont. He's a distinguished writer and speaker. Notable lectures include the Donald Creighton Lecture at the University of Toronto in 2020. He has been a speaker at the Wilson Institute for McMaster University in 2019 and the Riley Distinguished Lecture at the University of Winnipeg in 2018. He's the leading authority on slavery in the maritime provinces, and I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to talk with him about his book. Amani, thanks for coming to talk. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Richard Preston. He's an important figure in your first book, Blacks on the Border. 
Can you tell me who he was? Yeah, he was a Black person who became a community leader among the Black refugees who are a group of African-Americans from Maryland, Virginia, and the Georgia Sea Islands who went up to Nova Scotia during and after the War of 1812 and settled at Preston and Hammond's Plains and a few other places and sort of tried to create a community. He was searching for his family, came up to, to Nova Scotia. There's some questions about exactly how he got up to Nova Scotia, but what's clear is he knew the people that we refer to as the Black refugees. I mean, he was basically one of them. They built homes, they tried to create farms, and they also built churches. And that's what Richard Preston did. He's the founder of the African Baptist Church uh, on Cornwallis Street, which is to, still there to this day. It's founded in 1832. And he was also the founder of that, and one of them, of the African Baptist Association in 1854. So the church is kind of, a, it's, he's importing it from the United States, but he's also setting up something locally? It's both of those things, but it's also there had been Black Baptists and Black Methodists in Nova Scotia prior to the War of 1812. It comes out of the, the First Great Awakening, and basically what that's all about is Christianity being brought down to a level where everyday Americans could understand it. It was energetic. It focused on God's holy fire. If people were going to these revivals, which I mean... One of my students was like, so it's like Coachella. I mean, it's like, it's like Burning Man. Well, you know, it kind of is like an outdoor raid. People are going, you know, they're getting hit with the spirit, thousands of people. It's one of the few places in America in 1754. You got George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards preaching, saying all these crazy things. And you got black slaves sitting there right next to white slave owners. So it's sort of a, an Americanizing of religion. And it's what also makes them reject the Anglican church in a way that not all loyalists want it to do. Okay. What's, what's his big role in, 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 the, in the Blacks on the Border book? What's, how does he tie that story together? You know, I was rereading the introduction. I was wondering to myself, would I still start this book with Richard Preston? I told that story because I wanted people to have something that they could relate to. So often, I think before Blacks on the Border, Black refugees really were painted as these kind of sort of lesser than stepchildren of the Black loyalists. I wanted to have this sort of person that people might have heard of, but that they could sort of hear more about. And I think George Clark, George Elliott Clark does a lot with him as well. But I think I wanted to tell that story of a Black person who left Virginia and went to Nova Scotia and passed through this border. And once he crossed this border, he has new and sometimes better opportunities, but he doesn't use the border as this place where he doesn't look back or think about what's going on in uh, back home in Virginia and in Maryland. They're extremely conscious of this. And when they form the African Abolition Society, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about slavery in the United States. So when they come into Nova Scotia and in the Maritimes more broadly, people moving across the border, how, how are they being received? You know, I wrote an article in 2017 where I talk about different types of uh, like receptions that they get. For some white people, like for example, the assembly is like anybody but these people. I think the assembly said these people are unfit by nature 
for an association with his majesty's subjects. And that was a prevalent feeling. There were some hard feelings about the Jamaican Maroons who had left in 1800. There was even way harder feelings about the Black Loyalists who had left, I mean, almost like, you know, 25, I mean, when they leave 1792, we're talking like 1815. Those feelings were still there. And the fear was they did not want an introduction of like a large group of former slaves into Nova Scotia right when slavery was dying out in Nova Scotia. That's the last thing they wanted because it was like, well, what are we going to do with these people? But the smart ones figured out that you can exploit black labor without slavery. So that's part of it. I should also say really quickly, some white people in Nova Scotia, and a good example of this is a person who wrote something to the Nova Scotia newspaper in 1815. He worked in the Acadian Recorder. He was responding to an extremely racist letter. He was like, wait a minute, anybody who associates one's skin color with their actual character, he says, that's not the gentlemanly thing to do. But I would say the way they look at the border, depending on who it is, but I think Preston is among this, other leaders like Septimus Clark, but also illiterate Black women and men also think this. I think that they see the border as something that can be drawn very sharply when it suits their needs. They know that being in Nova Scotia affords them certain opportunities that they did not have before. It might allow them to have land. It might allow them to assert themselves more. It might allow them to go to court to protect themselves. And a good example of this is what I write about in my very first real article in Acadiensis, the battle at Fuller's Farm. And basically what happens is, is Mr. Fuller, they're all refugees. Like he's on his land and these white hunters come on his land and he basically says to them, this is my land, you can't come on here. I'm a settler, his majesty put me here and that's where I'm gonna stay. Hunters were like, no, this isn't really your land, it's common land and we're gonna hunt if we want. Now, because Mr. Fuller is not, giving the proper effacement or the proper, this sort of performative respect. And they are, they want to go hunting and they feel like it's common land. So anyway, these people come along and they're like, look, we're not going to listen to this black guy, this former slave, tell us what to do. And at that point, Mrs. Fuller and her children come and they have rocks and they start throwing them at these white hunters. This is in Dartmouth. And basically she says to them, and it's a literal quote, okay, because it goes to court. She says, we are not now in the United States, and we can do as we like here. This is a clear understanding of the border. She can do certain things that she could not do before. Now, the great thing about this is also the white reaction to the border, right? Because, you know, the hunters draw their guns and the family like sort of goes away. They don't kill them. Of course, to me, it's like that's the difference between, you know, the United States and British North America right there. But I mean, maybe in New England, it'd be similar, but they don't kill them. They sort of threaten them. They go to court. And the magistrate says to Mr. Fuller and his wife, if you had done this in your own country, you would have been shot. I'm sorry to observe that there are too many of your kind or you people up here and sort of expresses his understanding of the border. So it's a fascinating thing. And I think they, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think they might've gotten a little bit of a charge, but it wasn't like, you know, they weren't like since to death. But my point is the border in that sense, yes, it matters. Yeah.
that's that, that's that's a phenomenal thing about this book. They're they're creating this. Like, there's this impression in and so much Canadian history that these were poor victims coming up and just kind of being rescued. But this is a totally different story. And, but I think that it's complicated. And it's an interesting thing about having been in Canada for years, going to grad school there, but then also living in Vermont. We want to tell ourselves a certain story, partially because the documentation is better. And partially because it makes us feel good. Barry Cahill and Jim Walker are both dear mentors and friends of mine. It's not like Jim Walker, when he wrote The Black Loyalist, was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about Black slaves. I know Jim very well. That was never his intention. You know, so I think that sometimes, yes, you know, the truth of some poor Black people coming up, white people helping them, part of that's true. Like the Underground Railroad in the United States, right? Part of that is true. But it's one-sided. There's more going on. Just like there's more going on in Canada than just people welcoming these Black people. Because, you know, not to leave out Quebec or French Atlantic world, but they're part of this Anglo-British Atlantic world. And generally speaking, they see Black people at best as mm, like a, a reservoir, if you will, of cheap labor. It's not really their fault. That's the world that they grew up in. It reminds me of this 1807 slaveholder petition from Digby, which is one of my favorite documents of all time. In the beginning, they say, we don't pretend to advocate slavery as a system. This system of slavery existed in the American colonies long before we were born. But we want compensation for our slaves. We grew up with this. We didn't want this. We didn't create this. And we don't even think it's that good of a system. But we've invested in it because you all told us to. So here we are. Another important book by Amani Whitfield on the black experience of the border, and the second major topic of this interview, is the existence of slavery in the Maritimes. I asked Amani to introduce us to the Loyalists and the slaves they brought with them through the example of the life of Mary Postal. Mary Postal was a woman who was obviously enslaved before the American Revolution. There's some dispute about who she was enslaved to, because according to her, she was enslaved to an American revolutionary. And because of that, she ran away to British lines and was therefore free. And that Jesse Gray, this white Southern loyalist, basically said to her, I'll take care of you and your, and your children, and I'll give you wages. And it turns out he just kind of re-enslaves them, which is a common thing that I've written about extensively. I think re-enslavement is like, the single most important concept going on in the late 18th century, at least in the Maritimes in this part of Canada. He basically re-enslaves them. And then he's going to sell, he's going to take her daughters from her and sell them. He gives one of them away. Then he's trying to take another one. And when he does that, she goes to the courts. Now, this is an issue that we have to think about in terms of the border, like super carefully, because... It's not that Black people can't use the court system in the American colonies. That's only true in a certain way, right? There are freedom suits, all of that sort of stuff. But in Canada, she felt like she could go to the Shelburne courts full of slave owners and say, I'm, I'm actually, I'm loyal to the crown. I, I ran away from my, my owner, Elijah Postal, who was this terrible patriot, and this guy has has re-enslaved me and he shouldn't have done it. And, you know, she has witnesses come 
And then, you know, Jesse Gray brings in and says, no, she's always been a slave. This is a total lie. And what they decide, they say to Mary Postle, they say, you have not proved that you were not a slave. Because the place of slavery in the Maritimes was kind of questionable, there wasn't really a slave code. They basically were working on an assumption, look, this woman's probably a slave. If she wants freedom and wants us to take property away from this dude, you, you have to prove this to us. So that's what happens to Mary Postal. Now, what's special about the Maritimes, or at least maybe not New Brunswick as much as we're finding out, but Nova Scotia especially, the justices there, Thomas Strange and then S.S. Blowers, who's a graduate of Harvard, those guys, they sort of flipped the script in the late 1790s, early 1800s. They make it so owners basically have to prove that they own a slave legally, which they almost can't do. What does that mean that Justice Blowers and Strange flipped the script? What he does is he makes it almost impossible for owners to prove that they legally own slaves. But basically, a Black person would run away and would be sheltered by usually a, you know, a goody-two-shoes white abolitionist who thought slavery was wrong. Or sometimes it could just be a white person who hated the slave owner for some other reason and just did it anyway. And then they would be like, yeah, I'm not returning your slave. You can't have your slave. Sorry, I'm not giving it back. Then, you know, these guys are like, oh my God, it's like a headache, right? It's like, I'm sure they're thinking, should I just shoot this guy? They probably can't get away with it. They know that. So, so what do they do? They got to try to make it work legally. Blowers, you know, he knows all these American loyalists, even though he's from Massachusetts and people like Delancey, of course, are from New York. You know, he's like, well, why don't you just try the right? Why don't you just come to court and... If you really own the slave, if it's really legal, you know, I mean, just go ahead. So he baits them. They go into court and they're like, I own this slave. The slave has run away. This person is sheltering it. And basically I've lost this much money because of this guy who stole my slave. Sometimes they don't have a bill of sale. And why don't they have a bill of sale? Sometimes they've owned this slave from childhood, but more likely a lot of these people got run out of their houses pretty quickly. They don't get to, you know, they're not sitting there, you know, packing things slowly. So sometimes we just lose bills of sale. So they don't have that, or they have a bill of sale and blowers will say something like, um, I see you have a bill of sale. That's great. Thank you for giving that to me. And we'll take it into evidence. Here's the problem though. Can you prove to me that the person that sold the slave to you rightfully owned the slave legally? And of course they can't do that. And so they just start they just start losing in court all the time. But in New Brunswick, it's different. And David Bell shows this. Like with Stacia's case, they make it clear that they are not going to end slavery with a judicial decision. Now, to be fair, neither does blowers. They don't have it's not like a Brown versus Board of Education decision or a Somerset decision. I wanted to pose this question to you because it, it shows up in a lot of your work. Women are turning to the courts. And I, I wondered if you had an had a, had a answer to that. Why, why do we see women showing up in the courts? Um, and what do they expect to get out of this as opposed to men, if, if there's a difference? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I really think I should write, maybe we should write an article. It's right on, like, why is... Stacia, she goes to the court in New Brunswick, right? Tell us a bit about Stacia. 
Uh, it's like super complicated, but she's basically a woman who is re-enslaved by multiple different loyalists. She runs away from Joseph Clark in the early 1790s with her husband, who is a indentured Black person, Richard Hopfield, and her two children. One of these two children, Richard Hopfield Jr., is a subject of a court case in 1806, where the New Brunswick Supreme Court judges basically uphold slavery. Dacia was a slave, he's a slave, and they don't really want to take him away from Stair Agnew. There's a multiplicity of cases, but she gives an affidavit in there, and it's really, really interesting. This is in front of the, in, in the New Brunswick court. Yes. And then in 1800, the famous case, Nancy, this woman uh, who was a slave of Caleb Jones, basically what's clear is she... She went to court to challenge his right to hold her as a slave. And I don't think I made a big enough deal of that in my first place. And so why is it her? Why is it Stacia? Why is it Mary Postal? Why, why those three? Why these Black women? And I was playing with this just the other day. I'm like, Max, I'm not exactly sure what this means. But what's going through my head right now with all of this is Marissa Fuentes and other people from like the Rutgers School, the Rutgers PhD program, which is a wonderful program. You know, they're very well known in African-American history. I believe Walter Rucker's there and other people, and they're great. You know, she talks about in her book, The Archive Silencing Women. And I agree with this. It's in the introduction to my biographical dictionary. The issue is that, I, I don't know, like, yes, I have no doubt that the archive generally sciences enslaved people, working people, poor whites, I mean, all of these things. But why does the archive here, why is it telling us these, these beautiful stories? And these are particularly legal archives, legal cases where you're seeing that especially. Yes. And maybe that's another point. But I mean, women are, I mean, some of the best things we know about women also are runaway ads. You know, the other, the other issue that struck me as something that needs to be explored or examined or thought about in addition to all this is is looking very carefully at these lives of people that we're talking about. Because it seems to me, if the question is, where is slavery? Where is Canadian slavery? I think it's in these individual lives, like Stacia and this slave owner who everyone knows about, Joseph Clark. It's also between, you know, uh, Caleb Jones, who's well-known resident, and all of his slaves in New Brunswick. So you think that you can locate slavery or better better understand slavery by going after the individual lives of people rather than trying to examine the entire institution. Is that is that what I'm understanding there? I'm at this point where I just keep writing stuff with people. My friend, my my my, my former student, Franco Paz and I, and there's another woman, we just wrote an a book chapter that's the lead chapter in, an, in something that's coming out on African-American internationalism. It's supposed to be in search of liberty, but the first chapter is about re-enslavement in Halifax and Franco and I wrote it. That woman, Elizabeth Watson or Phyllis is re-enslaved. She's free in Boston and she's re-enslaved in Nova Scotia. And in this, in this question of, you know, when these women cross the border does the archive not stop silencing them, but give us a room to start questioning stuff? So I don't know. That's that's my thought. Yeah. No, I think it's you're you're right. It's complicated. It goes back to that question. You know, how do they understand the border, and how are they uh, using it? You could connect to a larger discussion around 
the courts, patriarchy, race, all of those things, which I think would make for a really useful contribution to understanding what's going on with this understanding of a line. And I think that, that you said before about this is not this is not your country or this is your country, depending on whose perspective, whether it's the judges or whether it's um, Fuller. How do these people respond to this? How do they imagine themselves on one side of the, of the border or the other? It strikes me that, I mean, there's a really useful intervention there on, on, on understanding legal cultures. So we've got these stories about slaves. You've already mentioned the runaway slave ads. Can you can you explain to the listeners what is a runaway slave ad, and can you possibly give us an example of one? By, by runaway slave ad, I mean when an owner loses something that he or she thinks is their property, they will put an advertisement in the local newspaper. And these advertisements, they can be very, very informative for what they tell us, but also what they don't tell us. But they might tell us not only... Uh, somebody like Hector's name, they might describe him or her physically. They might describe their age. They might tell you about their previous owner. They might tell you about their occupational skills. And this is very, very important. Just to give you an example. So this is the, the ad from Hector placed in 1784 in a, a newspaper in St. John, put in by a guy by the name of uh, Frederick William Hecht. He worked for the British Army. I believe he was an assistant commissary. He was from New York, and I've seen his documentation from New York and in Nova Scotia. He said in this ad, run away from the subscriber on the Saturday evening, the 26th, um, a Negro man slave named Hector, by trade a cooper, a tall, slender fellow, speaks English like the West Indian Negroes, and is very talkative. He came to St. Augustine, Florida, that is, to this place, that meaning St. John, via New York, on December last. He had his feet frostbitten on the passage and has a very lazy gait. Whoever secures and delivers him up to me shall have a reward." So that's what they are. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You do a lot of stuff with it. It's like some of the best documentation you're ever going to get because it tells you about the, the slave and his relationship with the owner. It tells you uh, background that this person, and when they say speaks English like the West Indian Negroes, that means that the person is absolutely from the Caribbean, but probably from Africa. It, we also know his skill. Right. And that he's a Cooper and also that he had lived during his life, at least in the West Indies, probably Africa, probably the West Indies, Florida, New York and St. John. I mean, that's an incredible story. That's an Atlantic world traveler. And, you know, before when we were doing the history of the black loyalist or others, we weren't talking about dudes like him. So when when Hector, I mean, when, when, when you put that all together, you can then like reconstruct an understanding of what his life would have been like moving from St. Augustine, Florida, up to St. John. He's crossing different regional, not just jurisdictions, but also cultures, societies. Yeah, I mean, runaway slave ads are the, like the greatest. I mean, I love them. And you know, my, my, my friend and colleague, Charmaine Nelson, who's now, of course, CRC at NASCAD and doing great work there. And my friend Afua Cooper at, at my alma mater, Dow, also doing great work on, on runaway slave ads. I mean, runaway slave ads have 
always been used very effectively in African-American historiography. And it took Canada, it took us way too long to see the value in it. You know, whether you go back to Michael Mullins' 1972 book, or you talk about the, the publication of the edited editions of Runaway Slave Ads in Maryland, South Carolina, four volumes, all of that. But I think David Waldstriker's article from 1999, William and Mary Quarterly, he says, look, he said, you know, in some ways they're America's first slave narratives because we'd find out stuff in these ads that we would never know about these people otherwise. Now, it is true that you have to be careful because uh, a runaway slave ad, it's a guy or a woman, but usually a, a man who's writing the ad and usually a, a, a male who's run away, but not all the time, is basically trying to retrieve somebody that he views as his property, somebody who he views as basically a degraded human being on some level. But in writing these ads where, that are based on their right to holding a human as property, they also have these incredibly humanizing words. Yeah, whether we talk about the frostbitten feet or or whatever, we can really reconstruct a story of these of these people and how they're what what are their interests in, in this getting away, um, and how they're they're participating in that negotiation of that or the, how they're pushing back, resisting that 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 relationship. And some of them they're very touching. Some of them are kind of hysterical, but of course that could be because I've looked at them for so many years. Sometimes there'll be a runaway ad that'll say something like, "Well, you know." It, James has run away from me. I'm so upset about this. Just tell James if he comes home, I'll forgive him. And you see this negotiation going on between slave and owner. And you have to remember that when a slave runs away or an enslaved person or enslaved people run away, it's not always simply to get freedom. My friend Jared Hardesty talks about this in his books on New England, and everybody should read Jared Hardesty because slavery in New England is similar to the Maritimes. Sometimes they run away because their owner has done something that pisses them off. It could be anything. They don't let them go see their girlfriend or their boyfriend who lives in the town over. They whip them for something that the slave doesn't think they deserve. It could be a lot of different stuff. So I think all of those things are sort of important. Let me push you a little bit more on the, on the question of the individual lives, because that's a big part of your current research. Amani's current book project, A Biographical Dictionary, is entitled Biographical Sketches of Black Slaves in Atlantic Canada. It's a, pro it's a project of humanizing people, giving them agency. Why are you so interested in creating and uh, re-recording the voices of Black people? It's not even the voices. It's just like faint gyrations of a person's life. You know, when the only thing you know about somebody is it says uh, in the Nova Scotia Zet in 1785, we have for sale this black girl that's age nine and that's it. It's pretty rough, but like, I guess you're saying like, why do I do it? I think for no other reason than I wanted to humanize and individualize these people's experiences. I mean, I really think one of the tragic things about the world we live in today, I mean, there's many depressing things. I think we both know this as fathers. I think one of the tragic things that this idea that all people that we associate with a certain group all think one way or have all experienced the same thing. We do this too often. It can be black community, 
indigenous community, LGBTA community, dudes who are from Manitoba. I mean, we do this too often and it is not helpful. And I always tell my students when we're talking about slavery, I'm like, please, their lives pretty much suck. That's probably true. But I'm like, you don't, not everybody has the same life. I'm sorry, Phyllis Wheatley's life is not the same as a black woman who is born in the Georgia Sea Islands and works on a on a rice plantation. It's just not the same. So it's changed in the last few years, but Canadians have been largely unaware of the history of slavery, and I think more broadly of the black experience in Canada, just in general. It seems to me that there are challenges to getting to those individual stories, to getting to the, to getting at the, the the story of the little girl who's for sale in the newspaper. What are the challenges? Of, like, how how do you how do you overcome the challenges of of finding these experiences? I mean, you, like literally, how do I find them? Yeah, because I look for them, you know, because I always wanted to tell the story of black people who historically we forget are black is and maybe that mirrors my own experience because you know I grew up you know my 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 father was a medical doctor my mother was a PhD in biochemistry both my grandfathers were medical doctors my great grandfather was medical doctor whenever i heard people speak about black people their sort of framing of the black experience was not my experience at all it was not what my parents were like. It's not like what my family was like. It didn't speak to my experience in university. So I think for me, I wanted to know these stories. And this is why I keep crying out for people to do a history of Black people in Newfoundland. The Atlantic world, odd, and the connections between Newfoundland and the West Indies in terms of enslaving, it just seems crazy that nobody's done this. I don't get it. You use that phrase. This is the stories we tell ourselves, you know, like because in many ways, that's what, you know, Canadians have told ourselves we don't really have. And I think it has changed. But somebody's got to start looking at these stories in order to tell them. And yeah, it strikes, I mean, it strikes me that that's, that's, that's the big thing that I, that I take away from, from this book, that it's so obvious once you start looking for the stories of Mary Postal. You know, to go back to Christy uh, Clark Pujara's book, dark work, which is all about the business of slavery. There's a lot of stuff going on about enslaved individuals, but in, but slaving as a business. And looking at the transnational connections of slavery that are, that are connecting Nova Scotia, um, the Maritimes to the broader Atlantic world, because there are documents that are there. Did I tell you this, but because like, we just found it, my former, my current grad student, who's now going to University of Toronto next year, Sarah Shute, who's a wonderful, wonderful, she's really great. She just finished her thesis and it's all about the West Indies connection with slavery in the maritime, the economic connection, personal connections. We found something on the slave voyages stuff that's now online. When I first looked at the slave voyages stuff where they, where they track all the different shipping, in the beginning, they weren't doing as much of shipping from Kingston, Jamaica to Halifax or to, to Yarmouth, or St. John, or whatever. They weren't really doing that. We went back and we found it. There's multiple ships coming into the Maritimes in the 1780s that were bringing 10, 12, and in one case, 44 
enslaved black people from Jamaica into the Maritimes. It was just crazy. And you know, the other flip side of this is the Legacies of British Slavery website, where they have every single person who got compensated. And for the students out there listening, go you know, go ahead and calculate 20 million pounds. Okay, in 1834, how much do you think that is today? And that's what they gave people. And what we have found now are all the connections to people who had interest in slavery throughout the British Empire who were in colonial Canada. This is a project just crying out to be done. Like, that's the thing. I mean, I hope that that's something I can do over the next couple of years. Encourage some motivated students to start doing this kind of research. Is there a moment then when you can say that slavery ends in the Maritimes? Yeah, no, this is a debate that we've had. I mean, it's a debate that I have. I mean, some people would consider this a weakness of my work, or maybe some people might consider it a strength. Like for all intents and purposes, the truth is, is that slavery lasts, I would say, at least until the late 1810s, and in some ways, the early 1820s, because we know of certain and slaves where if wills were actually followed through, they probably would have still been enslaved. I think it starts to die out late 1810s. And it just sort of slowly peters out. But you got to remember, I think another reason why it sort of dies out is because some people who own slaves, they're selling them. You also have this, I'm not going to say it's controversial because I think that's that's over overstating it, but you also have this, this point that you make at the very end that Slavery doesn't bring an end to racism. In fact, slavery in some ways increases racism. Obviously. I mean, maybe it's just the American in me, but listen, you know, it's hard for my students. I'm teaching a class right now. I really love these kids that learning about African-American history since 1865. It's really hard for a lot of people to deal with the fact that it's like, yes, slavery is a horrible thing. And think about what it does in, you know, up until 1865. But look at the things that are done to black people in the United States. Look at the things that go on in the United States after the Civil War. Lynching, while we can't make the argument it never happened before 1865, when you're talking about lynching to make a point, lynching like we're gonna cut off this dude's genitals and gouge out his eyeballs kind of thing, like the stuff that Ida Wells Barnett writes about, and her wonderful books, that stuff's happening in the 1890s. And David Ryan Davis makes this point in his book, In Human Bondage, which is a wonderful one-volume overview of slavery in the new world. He shows this. It's like, look what they're doing to these people. It's what they're doing afterwards. So you would say that same thing, that same thing is happening in British North America, the end of- Let me be very clear here. There is not a comparison between- mm, British North America in the 1820s and the United States in the 1870s. There's just not a comparison. I mean, there's no Colfaxes where they're killing like 100 people. There's no like shotgun policy like they have in Mississippi to get rid of black voters. Do you know what I mean? There's not that level of violence. That doesn't mean that there wasn't some violence, but my point is more similar to what happens in New England. That's why I play with this this idea in the Canadian Historical Review about uh, racism and similarities with New England, right? The similarity with New England for me is that, as Joanne Pope Mellish writes about, when slavery ends, it's replaced by a more vigorous form 
of racism. I think you use the word insidious. Yes, I do use the word insidious because it's there. I mean, like, look, at my old age, I've grown to like Robin Winks. I know that's hard for people to take, but I, I used to find Robin Winks infuriating. And in some ways I still do. But, you know, he talks about how the black refugees fan the flames of the even worse racism. But what I think he was trying to say is actually not untrue. I think it's actually accurate. The idea is that you had these black refugees come in 1815. They were obviously coming right out of slavery. They didn't have any capital. They did about as well or as poorly as white people who came to the Maritimes and didn't have any money. The assumption was they're poor because they're lazy and because they're black. That was sort of the image. But if a white group of people, like Welsh settlers in a place like some horrible part of Nova Scotia where the land is terrible, Lord Dalhousie talks about these people are just completely wretched. They're queued up to get their ration. But the assumption isn't that they have some sort of defective racial character. That's, that's the real issue to me. It goes back to that case that, that you mentioned, the farmer um, and his wife and the children throwing rocks. Mr. Fuller, he comes up as a, as a free black and gets land. And in many ways, it's that, that freedom which sparks the, the hatred of him. But listen, you know, the, the fact that the, the Nova Scotia Assembly tries to ban black migration in 1815 and they can't, right? The, the, you know, they can't, the British government won't let them pass that. They try to, the, you know, they try to do it again in 1834. Why 1834? Because the minute slavery ends in, in, in the British Empire, or shall we say, when they end it to start their four years of indentured service of these people, not to mention the 20 million pounds they gave these people who own slaves throughout the British Empire. That's pretty crazy when you, when you think about it, because you know they were afraid that Black people were going to come up to the Maritimes from Jamaica, I don't know, St. Kitts, anywhere. And they did not want this. And they tried to pass a law. They're like, y'all cannot come here. We don't want you here. We had the Black Lois. We had the Jamaican Maroons. We had the Black refugees. Uh, they just don't want it. And the flip side is you got to remember the real reason that, that, that people in the Maritimes are against the end of slavery, as far as I know, in the Caribbean. One of my supervisors, David Sutherland, he was a big historian of capitalism in the Maritimes. The Halifax merchant class, they had investments and they did not want slavery to end in the Caribbean. Amani, thank you very much. I learned so much. Yeah, that was great. I would like to thank Kathy Buchanan for the support that has made this postdoctoral fellowship. Thank you to the History Department at Queen's University and the Nugent Fund for supporting this series. This interview was edited and produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you. <laughs>